we're going to talk about a much misinterpreted story today from Luke 15. I was listening to a, a, a television show this week, and uh, it, was a, it was a drama, uh, and, um, and um, an ex-spouse said to the other ex-spouse, I can never forgive you. I don't know, that's just chilling to me. I don't know that I'm, okay, I'm not a saint, but I don't know that I've ever uttered those words. Okay? But the truth is, there's a lot of unforgiveness in our world, isn't there? Um, uh, some things seem too painful to forgive. On the other side of that coin, sometimes you and I, are hard-pressed to figure out if we can ever be forgiven. Uh, That particular emotion I can certainly relate to. Forgiveness, and I began to think about this week, but I want you to think about it a little bit in the context of this very familiar story. Forgiveness is actually scandalous, as you understand it. Forgiveness uh, by God is certainly a scandal. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive, and it got him in all kinds of trouble. He associated with those that seemingly most needed forgiveness, and that got him in trouble too, and that's kind of the context of what we're going to deal with here today. By the way, you're here. You're here. Um, and by the way, I neglected to wear green today, even though I've got a little bit of Irish blood in my, in my system. Um, uh, but, you know, top of the morning to you, L.E., Okay, uh, uh, but you're here today because you didn't get to go on spring break, right? And that's kind of, so we're all here to commiserate. I talk to adult people who have no children at home that are leaving for spring break, and I'm saying, what? Why did you get a spring break? You know, you know that fish don't go on spring break. They're always in school. <laughs> uh, That's awful. Sorry. Sorry, just, you know. <laughs> you could have stayed in bed for them. I will tell you this. Here's what MACU students do on spring break. They win national championships in basketball. Our women won the second in a row yesterday. And our guys start their championship uh, tournament, what, on Thursday? Anyway, uh, so that's what those guys do. That's pretty cool. All right, now, I want you to look at, we're in 15, we're going to get down to the story of the prodigal, which is typically called the story of the prodigal son, but the way the clock back here goes back and forth when saying it's 10.57 and 1.04. I can't trust either one of those. So I've got my phone up here, I'll keep, I'll keep watch on it. Um, this is one of the most beloved texts and one of the most beloved stories that was spun by Jesus, uh, his parables. Uh, but it's often um, misapplied. Um, it's one of a series that he spoke in response to his opponents. Now, I want you to catch this. So look, if you're in Luke 15, let's read the first couple of verses here. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, by the way, I like the fact that those two are always linked together. I was working on taxes this week. Okay, yeah. Uh, the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Notice who's drawn to him. Those who need forgiveness. 
Okay? And, and by the way, we all do. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that's a problem. So he st starts to tell three stories in, in, the, in the 15th chapter of Luke about lost things. And the one that we're going to study today is kind of the third in that series. Sinners of all kinds of stripes flocked to him. And it didn't sit well with religious leaders that were opposed to Jesus. So they grumbled, that's the word, uh, about his association with those kind of people, especially about his eating with them. So beginning here uh, with, the, with the first couple of three verses of, uh, of um, Luke 15, he, this marks the beginning of his response. Look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. Okay, he tells them these stories. And he tells a story about um, a lost coin and a lost sheep. And he talks here about a lost son. But when Jesus used parables to address the Jewish leaders, uh, these were often meant to be, and you've got to catch this, these were often meant to be in-your-face tweaks <laughs> at, aimed right squarely bullseye on their hypocrisy. Okay, so this story I've never thought about really in that context. So he rebukes pious leaders who disdained him because he welcomed sinners. Because of that, he tells these three stories back to back to back. And our favorite one, obviously, is this one. Let's read a little bit of the story. We're going to take it apart a little bit by bit. Um, Dr. Blair... It was Father Blair last week, I think, wasn't it? You've been promoted, yeah. Uh, verse 11 and 12, if you would, please. Okay, now, so far as we get into this, it's kind of a typical family. Um, in their day, okay, um, in their day, the oldest had unusually, um, an unusually extra amount of not only responsibility, but privilege. Who will go to, Sally, can I get you to go to, Le this is a hard one, Leviticus, Leviticus, um, uh, 25, I'm sorry, I want, um, let's go, we don't need to go to, I want you to go to, Deuteronomy 21, sorry, and read 16 and 17. I wrote it in my notes wrong. Sorry, gang. Uh, too, much coffee. too much coffee this morning. Yeah, there we go. I did have quite a bit of really good coffee this morning. Uh, would you mind, Sally? Did you, uh, we're going to go to to Deuteronomy 21, verse 16 and 17 in just a minute. Now, so there are responsibilities and privileges that the um, oldest son has. Now, I, I referenced uh, Genesis uh, 20. Um, thank you. Genesis 25. I won't, I won't read that, but it was just the idea that if you remember what got Jacob and Esau in trouble is this whole birthright. That's this, the, the privileges of the firstborn. Now, there's a mathematical thing that's going on here that we probably ought to understand. Uh, Sally, do you mind to read uh, from Leviticus 21, verse 16 and 17? Like I said, Deuteronomy, boy, 
I keep looking at my notes instead of where I'm supposed to look. So, okay. Thank you. Okay, so uh, don't get mired in the weeds of uh, two wives here. That's another part of the story, but we won't have to deal with that today. But the idea is don't give to the not first son uh, what is due the first son. So literally the first son gets, here's the math of, mathematics of this thing, okay? Um, the oldest gets a double share. So um, if, if there, are, there are three in Rhonda's family, you take the estate, divide it by three, plus one, okay, so you divide it by four, okay, and the, the firstborn would get two shares, and the other two get one share, okay, so in our story, there are two sons, it's the two plus one, so the estate's evolved by, divided by three, and the eldest gets two shares, the youngest gets one share, now that's going to, that's going to kind of come into factor here, um, um, so, I'm going to call him here for a second. I'm going to call him by several things today. Little boy. All right. Can you tell my disdain for this part of the story? So little boy is asking for a third of his dad's holdings. He's wanting to cash out while dad is still living. Does this make you mad? I think it should because that illustrates the wonder of this father, for one thing, by the way. Um, um, so, literally, the idea here is, treat me like you were dead, Dad. Okay? Now, somebody go to Proverbs 20, verse 21. I think I got that one right. Okay, Proverbs 20, verse 21. Who'll, who'll grab that one? Thank you, Cindy. Okay, so... Um, uh, treat, Dad, I want to cash out. So what you've got, what you and I've got to understand here is that the little boy here is asking for a third of Dad's holdings. He may have to liquidate some of that while Dad's still living. He may ruin all of it. Do I? He may ruin, he may ruin the whole thing. It's it's just awful. We we got to catch how. <clears throat> This kid is, and how gracious the dad is. So the word graciousness or grace goes in that next blank, okay? Now listen, as the, the Proverbs gives us kind of this, this idea. You'll like hearing this. Cindy, read Proverbs 20, 21. Is this an illustration of that principle? Okay, so there's the idea. This, by the way, would cause scandal on the dad in the city. You did what? Well, why would you do that? He asked for it. You want to go to college? It, yeah, you want to go to college at USC. That's what you get. Boy, Darren, you've got me started now, you know. Wow, what a deal. Okay. By the way, this whole thing, none of it passes the smell test, does it? 
Okay, so this doesn't pass the smell test either. The father's friends in the town square would say, you know what, I don't know if we can drink coffee with you anymore or not. You're just stupid. <laughs> uh, literally. It brings disrepute on the dad. And yet he handles this kid, little boy, with graciousness. Okay, let's read the next sections. Now, now um, Dr. Blair, you're not gone yet. I'm going to make you read again, okay? If you don't mind, read verse 13 down through 16. Okay, think about this for a minute. You don't have to answer it out loud unless you just want to. Who do you most identify with in this story? Little boy. Little boy. There are times when I identify with the dad, but not in the, in the gracious, kind way. Just more like, oh, what are you guys doing to me? I mean, you know. And then a lot of times I identify with the older brother, which we're not even going to talk about today. But the truth is that Dan... All of us have been in the position of little boy. We really have. And I'm going to get to that in a second, but I'm going to do it in a way that, that, okay, so the term prodigal, okay, somebody that's more biblically astute than me, Paul, check me out here. Prodigal's not in the scriptures. It's, it's an editorial comment used to identify the... Um, uh, used to identify the story. So Dr. Fuzzard and Colonel Willoughby, am I wrong? Oh, prodigal's not really in the text. But we've always called this the prodigal son. Now, when you think of, and by the way, I preached on this 30 years ago and I'm still thinking about it. The story ought to be called the loving father or the forgiving father. It, it's really not, it's more about the dad than the son. And it's more about what our heavenly father uh, how he responds to sinners in context, I think. But, so since it's been called all these years the prodigal son, what do you think the word prodigal means? I have never done this research till now. Forgiving, graceful. Okay. Uh, well, wayward, okay. Lost in context, lost, right? Wayward, all right. You're reckless. Uh, did you look it up, Pat? Okay, you looked it up. All right. So the the idea, the, literally the idea of a prodigal is someone who is recklessly wasteful. So now we're going to quit calling this guy little boy. We're going to start calling him wasteful. Mr. Waste. Extravagantly wasteful. Now think about that. That's really what the prodigal was. Besides treading on his father's good name and his good grace, he was just stupidly wasteful. I can't pick another word here. So, okay, so the idea here, he, he has a quick liquidation of all his assets, turns them into cash, goes somewhere else, 
away from dad's gaze. And he has an even quicker reversal of fortune. All right? He burns through it in a New York minute. So Mr. Waster, okay, that's the story. Now, it's a common fantasy. If I could only win the lottery, then life would be perfect. The evidence demonstrates otherwise. After winning $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, the winner had the worst year of his life. His own brother hired a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit a share of the winnings. The winner invested his gain in a business venture that failed and put him $1 million in debt. That's a hard year for a guy that won the lottery. Another man thought it the best Christmas gift ever when he won $315 million in a Powerball jackpot in December of 2002. But his marriage disintegrated as he spent money on alcohol and adultery. A, a woman who won $5 million in a lottery in 1991 gave $2 million of it to an illegitimate child her husband didn't know about. When he discovered his wife's deception, he poisoned her. Don't buy any lottery tickets. It ain't going to go well, okay? Uh, isn't it interesting how we can burn through things like this? So here's this kid. He's Mr. Waster, Mr. Wasteful. And by literally one verse into this part of the story, he has spent it all. It, my Bible in verse 14 says he spent everything. Uh, I, I love this, by the way, in verse 13. He squandered his estate with loose living. His medical condition, he was, was he had a, he was a loose liver. Okay, so, yeah. Um, sorry. My brain is not right today. Sorry. So, <laughs> in, I'm in a room full of leprechauns here. What do you expect? So, he does a really desperate thing for a Jewish kid to do, Mr. Waster. He hooks up with a guy feeding pigs. So, Jesus, this is interesting how, how brilliant is my Jesus. He introduces pigs into a story while he's trying to get to the heart of a bunch of, uh, of uh, very righteous, self-righteous Jewish people. Now, pigs were, not a, were just not appreciated in Jewish life. Um, um, can we go back to Deuteronomy for a second? Somebody read Deuteronomy 14.8. Who'll get that one? Sally, you know where Deuteronomy is now. Okay. Sorry, um, we're not going to Leviticus, though. We're going to Deuteronomy. Okay. Um, so he introduces pigs of this story, which would be deeply troubling to his Jewish audience when they when Jesus introduces the, the when he says the word swine or pigs, they're they're looking at each other and go, okay. So um, uh, Sally, read. A, it just kind of gives you a little bit of a, the detail about how how swine were distasteful to them. Verse 8. Fourteen eight, yeah. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a split hook, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. 
Don't touch them. Don't eat bacon. What kind of life would that be, by the way, without bacon? Don't. Huh? What? You think they sneaked eating bacon? Oh, okay. yeah. We had a Jewish friend who would come over and have bacon and eggs with mom and dad. What I, the story I've got on me is that most of the time in, in, our, in, in the job that I, I am involved in, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the dumbest guy in, at the table. And I, what I typically say, because all these people have PhDs and doctorates and, you know, I'm not. And uh, I will say, I feel like a ham sandwich at a Jewish picnic. <laughs> I just don't fit. Okay, so they can't even touch hogs. And now he has hooked himself, so he's in a distant country. So when Jesus spins this story, he adds this element to just show them how desperate this kid had, come, had become. A desperate thing for a Jewish boy to do. How far had he fallen? How desperate was he? Look at verse 16. Okay, notice, I, I sometimes miss this. My, my brother-in-law, who's recently deceased, <clears throat> anytime you would go to a buffet, he would not eat at it because he called him a trough. He would not eat at a trough. You get the reference, okay? Okay, he just wouldn't eat at a trough, would he? Wouldn't do it. Um, it but we're not talking here about a hog at a trough. We're talking about a kid feeding swine, feeding pigs. But if you notice verse 16, he wasn't even allowed to eat their stuff. Am I reading that right? He longed for, you catch that? He didn't even have slop to eat. If Stan was here, bless his heart, I hate the pain he's going through, but if Stan was here, I've heard him say a lot of times, describing someone in his life, he'd say, they are low, he was a, he, he described somebody in his life as being a low bottom alcoholic. I've never heard that term except from Stan Harrison. This kid was below the bottom. He had ended up below bottom. Let's read on though, okay? Cindy, can I come back to you and read 17, 18, and 19? So if I catch this, the bottom can actually be a good thing. He, um, from the bottom, the young man sees things more clearly. Do you catch this? He realizes his surroundings. <laughs> we were... You know, it's the first nice day in a, in a fortnight, right, yesterday. So we're out in, in our little convertible car yesterday, and a, and a, a stock truck drove by. <laughs> There's something about that smell that, that wakes you up, you know? Can you imagine what, what this young man smelled in that moment of crystal clarity? 
Hereford, Texas. Uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to pick, because John will beat me up if I talk too much about Texas. But It's the smell of money, that's right. So, but Can you imagine when that stench filled his nostrils, how he thought, where am I? And he has this moment of crystal clarity. It's interesting how the bottom can make us see clearly. And he realizes his condition. And as he begins here to think about what he might say if he were to go home, he begins to plan his trip home. And he says, he realizes here, according to what he's saying here, that his spiritual health is in worse shape than his physical shape. Because he says here, do you notice this? He says, I'm going to say to dad, not just forgive me, I've sinned against you. He's going to say, I've sinned against heaven. Isn't it interesting that, uh, and I put the reference of uh, Exodus 20 verse 12, that's right out of the middle of you know, God's top 10, where, where God says, you better be respectful of your parents or it won't go well for you. So he realizes he sinned against his, his dad, but he realizes that that sin, any sin, is against God as well. He's dishonored his father, but he's also dishonored the Lord. He has brought his father shame. His spiritual poverty is worse than his physical poverty. And so he begins to rehearse a repentant speech. I love this. Uh, you, you ever know when you're going to have to take your lumps, you kind of, okay, I'm going to write this out. I'm going to rehearse it a little bit. I, I, I know I've got to take my lumps. I'm going to go in and say to the boss, okay, here's what I've done. I used to do that here. I used to, you know, Marty's not that scary, but, but I used to do that here, and, and he would laugh at me. Seton, you worry about too much, many things. And I would say, pal, you pay me to worry about this kind of stuff. And, uh, but I remember rehearsing some of those kind of speeches. So he does. And then he heads out. Go to verse 20, okay? Here's what it says. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and it's come to life again. And he was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. This is the, you know, in, in so many ways for us, has become the, the, our favorite part of the story, right? So, he returns to a gracious welcome. <laughs> By the way, that word return is key. The Lord is always willing to forgive. Remember that story I turned, talked about from, from Blue Blood the last night when the ex-wife says, I could never forgive you? You'll never find Jesus saying that. But I got to return first to get this compassion, to get this gracious welcome. So, um, 
The dad's first reaction is key. It's interesting that when he left, he didn't run after him. Think about that for a minute. When he left, dad didn't run after him down, come back, come back. No. But when he came back, he ran down the road to meet him. I love that. He met him down the road, sees him coming. We could spend all kinds of time on this. He runs now toward him. Despite the indignity, the, despite the scandal that he'd put him through, the scandalous part of this is the forgiveness that was offered. And so, in verse 21, the boy, <clears throat> we can only figure, starts to share his re rehearsed speech. Dad, you got to know, hey, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on a minute. And the dad interrupts. He never gets to do his speech. The only reason you and I know the speech is because he rehearsed it before he got there. Right? Dad interrupts. And he says, bring him three gifts. Now, we've got to talk about, there's, there's probably all kinds of interpretation of this, but I'm going to go with my own interpretation of the three gifts offered to the son. Father says, bring him a robe. Only sons wore the robe. <laughs> Sonship, bring him a robe. You remember he was going to ask for a job. He's not going to need to ask for that because he returned his son. Secondly, he offers him, a, he says, bring him a ring. By the way, the ring was like carte blanche. The ring was a signet ring that was marked on all legal documents in into uh, wax. The idea here is legal authority. He was giving him again his power of attorney. Why would you do this? Because he loved him scandalously. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? There's nothing said about that here. What is, what is implied is the scandalous love of the Father. Forgive us. And he says, bring him some shoes. Now, slaves don't wear shoes in Jesus' day. Okay? Again, this is an, an indication of he's fully accepted. Not for servants. Shoes weren't for servants. Okay? And the celebration begins. Not a, it wouldn't be an everyday meal. There was no refrigeration. Um, they didn't eat meat at every meal. They're going to have, Troy, I love it, they're having beef. It's what for dinner. You know what I mean? I, I love that. And it's a calf. Uh, John, you're a, you're a cattleman. They, um, they, they extravagant to slaughter a calf because it's not going to get to grow. It's not going it, to, it, you know, it's not going to get to fatten up. They're going to invite their friends because They'll have more than they, the, the three of them can eat for sure. Four if there's a mom. So they're throwing a party. I love a barbecue. Here we go. All right. No bacon. Sorry, no bacon. Um, a calf is special. There'll be a lot of people invited. And the celebration begins, except for one. <laughs> His is the rest of the story I, I reference here. Um, it's interesting. I really believe that 
the older son in the story is an indication of Jesus' primary audience here. Those who didn't like people being forgiven. So, the truth is that Jesus is telling a story about grace. He is ready to take back the repentant. The waster. The repentant waster. That's good, Dan. I read a story this week. He was given a job as an apprentice in the family print shop. All he needed to do was learn the trade and he would be guaranteed a rewarding career. But things didn't quite work out that way. Soon conflicts arose with his boss who happened to be his stepbrother James. Not content with merely setting type, the apprentice wanted to write and have his words read by everyone in Boston. James was not impressed with his writing and he refused to publish it. Frustrated. So the apprentice began to submit essays under a pen name. Pen name. <clears throat> These are accepted by James for publication. He liked them, even though his brother had written them. He didn't know it. And soon readers in Boston eagerly awaited the next letter from Mrs. Silence Duguid. The deception angered James when he found out about it, and so the rebellious 17-year-old left home. He um, left and went to Philadelphia for a new start, worked in several printer shops. There was unsatisfying, so he headed to London. Lured there by an empty promise of help in starting a newspaper, he ended up working again as a typesetter, right back where he started from. So he goes back to Philadelphia, and he found work as a store clerk and a bookkeeper, but that return was fateful. That man was Benjamin Franklin, who went on to become one of our founding fathers. A popular but loose extended definition would describe him as an American prodigal. A waster. You see, uh, all of us have probably been in that position. It's interesting that Jesus wasn't using, even though we've used it so many times, Jesus is not using a heartwarming story here to illustrate how a family reconciliation should occur. He's telling the story of every person who has ever turned away from God and squandered the blessings of God's love and grace. He is ready to take back the repentant. Jesus is telling a story about grace. He's ready to take back the repentant. We may watch in silence as we depart, but he leaves the door out open for our he may, he may watch in silence as we depart, but he leaves the door open for our return. Jesus celebrated repentant sinners whom he had restored to fellowship with God. They needed mercy. They found that mercy in Jesus. Can I say this? Here's a verse that you could hang on during the rest of this Lenten season. It's found in the fifth chapter of Romans. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I tell you what? I have been a waster, a prodigal. I have tread on the grace of God, and he forgave me anyway. Is that your story? <laughs>